With me today is a returning uh, guest to Alex Garrett Podcasting, Professor Jeffrey Kressler. My goodness, Professor, last time we talked, we kind of were like in the August of the pandemic. We talked about the non-essential emergency not being met because of COVID. And isn't it weird? First, I hope you've been well since we last talked. Oh, yes. Perfectly, perfectly fine. And Professor is actually at John Jay College uh, Criminal Justice right now, right? That's where we find you? Yes. And uh, and so I want to get to that stack of books behind you in a minute. But <laughs> that, this Saturday or this weekend, we're going to see the implementation of another lockdown here in New York State. And why I always bring you on for this non-essential um, procedures and medical issues, because you had a very, what they consider non-essential, you had a very essential medical thing happened to you and you survived it. You wrote about it in the Daily News. For people who are just joining us may not know your story. How did New York City save your life? Let's start there. Well, I uh, I had a heart attack <laughs> uh, 15 years after having had bypass, sur bypass surgery. And um, at the time, the surgeon gave me a 15-year guarantee. And like everything else, 15 years and a day, I get a heart attack. It's like, who would have figured such a guarantee would wear out? But uh, what happened to me was an extraordinary New York experience. And that is, uh, I, as I wrote about in the Daily News in an op-ed, New York City saved my life. And by, I, by that, I mean the people of New York City. And what, I, what, what struck me in Elmhurst Hospital was the casual variety of so many different kinds of New Yorkers doing so many different kinds of jobs. And it seemed just that the differences were irrelevant compared to the common experience and their common, uh, common effort to keeping Elmhurst Hospital uh, a, a great public hospital. And I was just so struck by that, that I uh, had to write uh, an op-ed kind of to, uh, to praise New York City, but mm -hmm. also to thank Elmhurst Hospital because that uh, as a public hospital, the reputation is don't get hurt and go there on a Saturday night because it serves an underserved population of New York City without a doubt. And it's the healthcare system of last resort for many thousands of New Yorkers within that catch basin of, of Elmhurst Hospital. It's gotten a bad rap because of all of those issues, but you shining a light on that hopefully will give the residents of Elmhurst a, a different idea. But, uh, and do you feel that Elmhurst is in decline or is that just a myth? What, what is the state of that hospital, do you know? It, it just says that the city of New York has not been able to upgrade and maintain the, the public hospital system to the extent that the population of New York City needs it to be. That said, uh, I was in one of the best cardio units in the entire city. And who knew that a public hospital where you don't wanna go if you get stabbed on a Saturday, well, maybe you do, uh, certainly. Uh, but uh, who knew that they would have such a great uh, cardio unit? So the, what, that's all prelude because when COVID hit, when people talk about disparate impact on which populations got hit by COVID and 
where it was worse and what populations were at risk. Elmhurst Hospital was the epicenter of that initial COVID blast. And I don't know what the city has done for Elmhurst Hospital since. I can only say I hope that Elmhurst having experienced that very intense demand upon their already stressed resources and staff that the city has augmented and rewarded them for having come through it. Have they? I don't know. Well, I know that if you are a healthcare hero and you don't get vaccinated, you could be fired now. So that's a turn of events in and of itself. I don't but understand it. I, I don't either. I also don't understand how they basically, and I could be wrong about this, but you might know more. It feels like Professor Kressler, they diagnosed a heart attack as non-essential when it came to COVID. I mean, I feel like that was the general consensus. Uh, I don't know. Uh, all I know is that it was pretty essential to me <laughs> sure. at the moment. And uh, it they, they did. I was just stunned at how quickly 911 got the help to me. And when they got me into the hospital, I was whisked into the ER to mm -hmm. waiting doctors like I was a celebrity. And uh, I'm only a celebrity on your podcast, honestly. The, at the rest of the time, I'm just someone they're bringing in on the ambulance. But it was stunning how professional the medical teams were and, and still are, and how stressed they must have been over the last year and a half. I don't believe I asked you this last time, but um, the healthcare heroes did get a big warm welcome. They got this big fanfare because of what they did during COVID. But you've had medical issues. I've had medical issues. People who have had them have already appreciated them way before COVID. So why did society catch up during a pandemic? Where, where was that support in the seven o'clock cheers before that? I don't know. We want to feel good. We want to feel like we're doing something. We're, we want to feel like we're doing the obvious recognizable thing. Uh, did they need a parade? I don't know. Maybe Maybe some of them like the idea of getting a parade, but I, I think, honestly, they would prefer to have more nurses on the night shift than a parade down the Canyon of Heroes. I, I think they would have preferred to have more equipment ready and waiting for them at all times, rather than having everyone applaud at seven o'clock at night. Sure. Well, the hazard pay was a big issue, still is. I mean, it seems like they haven't gotten it yet, which boggles my mind. But let's talk about something happier then. Uh, to speak of happy stories, for those who are grow up in Sunnyside, uh, you have a book about that area of Queens. Tell us about it. That's just come out. Uh, Sunnyside Gardens, Planning and Preservation in a Historic Garden Suburb. Published by Fordham University Press. They have a series uh, of New York books, New York City, New York State books. And I will say right at the outset that Fordham just did a terrific job with the book that I was handing them for, uh, for publication. So kudos to Fordham University Press on that. Uh, my wife and I live in Sunnyside Gardens. We've lived there since 2004. We okay. moved in in 2004 and we arrived just in time for the very strained and sometimes nasty battle 
to have Sunnyside Gardens designated as a historic district. Uh, mm -hmm. Why it was so rancorous, I don't know, but it was. And for some reason, the press loved it because, oh, good, all of these, these semi-privileged people in this semi-privileged place are fighting. Let's, let's highlight that. Uh, but the, the thing is, uh, I've known about Sunnyside Gardens for uh, forever. I'm an urban historian as well as a librarian. And uh, I wrote a dissertation on the history of Queens at the CUNY Graduate School. Uh, the, the advice that you get is find a topic that is searching for its historian. And I'll tell you that the borough of Queens was desperate. It was, it was willing to date anyone to be their historian. And that would be me uh, because there hadn't been much written about it, really. It would be you because you've also been a historian on the Mets. I mean, I, I know you love that team, but Sunnyside um, <laughs> is also home to the author of uh, Ichabod Crane. Am I right? No. Yes. Yes. You're, you, you're right and absolutely wrong all at the same time. Okay. Uh, Sunnyside is the name of Washington Irving's estate up the Hudson. Sunnyside oh. Gardens is a planned garden suburb built in Western Queens adjacent to the Sunnyside Railroad Yard. And it is it has actually a great history. And, and that's why I wrote, I wrote this little book uh, because it's well known among historians of housing and well known among historians of uh, urban planning. Uh, but it has a history beyond its origin. The, the story that most historians told is these are the ideas that the, the founders, Lewis Mumford, Clarence Stein, Henry, uh, Henry Wright, uh, that crowd created this little garden suburb of a couple of hundred houses. And uh, in the Great Depression, uh, half of them lost their houses to foreclosure. The oh. end. Uh, that, that's basically as, as far as the historical record came. And I'm looking at it thinking, well, what happened in the next 50 years? <laughs> you know, yeah. the, pl the place is gonna be a hundred years old in, in three years. Uh, that's when it, it was built from 1924 to 1928. And so it's going to be a hundred years old. And all of the histories of it, just talk about the first 20 years or so. Well, what happened after that? And so the second half of my book is what happens to these famous places after they're built. You know, what happens after the cheering stops kind of thing, because yeah. people have to live there. And how, how does the place survive? Should it survive the way it was, the way it was planned, the way it was built, the way it was designed, the way it was meant to be experienced? Is that maintained or has it changed and morphed? Is more of it lost than is maintained? These are the questions I was asking. As a New York City historian, I know that you you love the passion. You've seen it decline. And you, I believe, mentioned to me at one point, this was the worst political atmosphere you've seen as a historian. Um, does a election America, Mayor Eric Adams help things? Or does this get us even more off track? I don't have any hope. <laughs> my, my friends and I are saying it's going to be a long four years. Uh, I have, I, if I could be completely honest, I have been... Uh, I've been involved in 
historic preservation matters since the 1980s. And I'm involved necessarily also in some zoning matters and urban, urban planning and design matters, all, all those kinds of questions that used to matter a great deal. What kind of city do we want to live in, ultimately, is the question that I always ask, right. which, which incidentally is the question that the founders of Sunnyside Gardens asked. Part I remember of living in New York's, I'm sorry, what? I remember you asked that question on this podcast quite a few times when we've had you on. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is, no one asks that question today, uh, mm. really. When, when they, they ask, what should we build? Uh, maybe what should it look like? Uh, what can we expect? But no one asks, how will people experience this city? Uh, mm. As I write in the book, the, uh, the founders of Sunnyside Gardens mm. ask the question, what kind of city would we build if we could start anew? Would it mm. be the same as, as we have? The, the congestion, the, the ultra density, the sanitation problems. I mean, these were the problems of the early 20th century and Sunnyside Gardens con contributed to the solution of that kind of urban life, which everyone conceded had lots of problems. Uh, but as I said, I've been involved in these issues since the 1980s and I have never felt mm -hmm so completely defeated ever. Well, Every... we'll, well, we'll give you hope then. I want to know. <laughs> hope, I'll take it. Well, well what, what would give you hope? Like, what is your, what would you like to see? I'm, uh, I've been involved with the Historic Districts Council, the Municipal Arts Society. I'm now president of the City Club of New York. And in, recent, in, in past decades, citizens could engage in the public process and engage city agencies to have their voices heard in what direction the city should change, what should be preserved and why, and what should change and in what way. And there was always a sense that the citizens could interject themselves into the process and be heard and win a, an yeah. awful lot of times. The, the right decision has come out an awful lot of times over those decades. Right now, we're in a time where every decision is going against community groups and in favor of very big, very influential developers who are very politically connected and the game they're playing in terms of getting their ideas, getting their plans over is so cynical in the way they engage the political process that it leaves me with little hope. All right, so I've got to ask you, because you are a librarian at John Jay Criminal Justice, I'm talking with Professor Jeffrey Kressler. Thanks again for joining me, Professor, by the way. Always love talking to you, but I finally see the bookshelf behind you. So, um, is the library sort of an escape from the non-hope you have? In, in a last January, what happened to me? The uh, chief librarian at John Jay said at our first meeting of the year, a Zoom meeting. He said, "Before we get going, I want you to know I'm gone." 
as of five o'clock today, I'm retired. I'm sure you'll figure it out. Click. Larry, Larry. <laughs> and he was gone. He, he basically said, I'm, I'm, I'm retiring as of five o'clock today with no advance notice to anyone. And so it was, I think it was one Zoom meeting with the administration too many, just, uh, just by the way. But uh, so my colleagues said, all right, everyone take one step backward except Jeffrey. Jeffrey, congratulations, you're the interim chief librarian. I said, no, no, <laughs> not me, and, but, but here I am. So since January, I have been the interim chief librarian in the time of the plague. Wow, and I feel like like a quarterly update then because you seem to be advancing as we're <laughs> podcasting almost every time. So congrats! Something new. I, I do this to keep you entertained, Alex. Uh, but the uh, the City University of New York completely shut down in March of nineteen of twenty twenty. Completely shut down, and the the libraries pivoted to a digital presence and we enhanced our digital offerings and digital activities. And that's all, all to the good. And we remained completely digital, completely closed until the beginning of this semester. And oh. as interim chief librarian talking to my colleagues, I made a case that we had to be open when the semester began. If students were coming onto campus, John Jay College Library was going to be open. And we did. Uh, the administration insisted that we be open only at 60% capacity. So I said, okay, we will do that. And you know how we're gonna do that to make sure we have limited occupancy? I'm gonna remove all the broken chairs. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so literally, we took away all the broken chairs and voila, we're down to 60% capacity. Uh, and no, we haven't been overly crowded, but I'm, I'm very pleased that several CUNY libraries are still not open, haven't been open all semester. Uh, some are open with make a reservation to come for two hours. Some have mm -hmm. said, let us know what book you want. You can pick it up and then get, a, get the heck out of here. Uh, we said the library is going to be open for as normal an experience as we can make it, masking, distancing, whatever else, and it's mm. worked. All right. Well, I'm, technology is just overtaking everything. So library's place, you still see it has a place in your college and in colleges in CUNY, um, but it, will the library always have a place, I guess, as we emerge into the digital realm even more? Yes, uh, just, to be, just to be practical, uh, a lot of city university students do not come from homes where there's an excess amount of space and quiet. I mean, if they're living at home and they have brothers and sisters, it's maybe they have one computer mm. to be shared by everybody, or, or maybe they don't have good Wi-Fi or whatever the issues are, I mean, some students were taking their classes on their phone. Oh, wow. And, you know, that they're writing papers on their phone. I mean, which, which is where we were during the pandemic uh, when we were shut down. We made a point of opening because every time we've done surveys in the past, the students who are here 
want to come into the library for a quiet place to study. That's mm. what they want. They, they want, some of them want the computers, but all of them insist on a quiet place to study. And we have never had noise problems in the library because the people who come here, there's a, an understanding that that's what it will be. I'll tell you what, the library for me used to be the one with the all-nighters. You know, you just had to be there from like one in the morning till four working on your papers. That's what college libraries yeah. felt like for a while anyway. So we don't have the staff for that, <laughs> but we do um, during final exams. The library is open 24 hours a day, not the whole library, but just the computer lab and a, and a, and a lounge. They're, they're open so students can come in and use it. Uh, Jeffrey, what I brought you on originally for was to talk about the non-essential limiting. And I've got to say, when these lockdowns happen uh, statewide and everything, how does it affect you, um, well, either mentally or physically with the library? Or does the CUNY set the lockdown procedure? Does that, do they take their lead from the state or who do they take their lead from? Or the city, I should say. Whatever the state and city rules are, that's what we do. And we modify them as, as will, as we can. Uh, for example, here at John Jay, we had the library open. At LaGuardia Community, it's still closed. What, you know, what can you say? But uh, we, I can't make unilateral decisions. John Jay administration does that. They can't because the CUNY Board of Trustees makes those decisions. And the CUNY Board of Trustees is beholden to the state in, in a way. So what we have is uh, as much space as we can to carve out a normal experience, that's what we're going to do. Uh, this, uh, I mean, it's because normal is so different for the kids in college now. A lot yeah. of their classes go on Zoom. So with that, I mean, as the as you know, the librarian that seems to know all and know everything and know people, but what's your message to students today as we sit here looking at a virus again that could revert us back to March 2020? I hate to say it, but it's like we're going there. Well, I'm I'm not sure that we are. I don't, I'm not sure that the disease is going to put us back there because where we were when we shut down a year and a half ago was unknown as to the severity of this disease. Uh, is it the end of the world Armageddon disease that is unstoppable? Is it one that we're gonna nip and we'll get under control in no time? No one knew, uh, now we know. Uh, but the question is, how do we respond to it? And how we respond to it, I, I'm sorry to say, the, the perception is how we respond to it is not necessarily a medical decision, but it's more and more a political decision. And what's really distressing is that the, the amount of trust that people mm. have in institutions has just is just plummeting. I mean, what, what are you supposed to do? We, we're, I, I just was downstairs and I saw that the pool at John Jay College is open. And what does it say? Masks must be worn on the pool deck. And I'm like, but you can take them off while you're swimming. I'm like, okay, well, at least there's that. You know, but, but the notion that uh, people I got don't trust it anymore. 
pronouncements that are coming down about what we need to do and who to do it, not just the, the, the mess that Andrew Cuomo left, but okay. it's also the mess that came from uh, uh, the federal government. Yes, use masks, don't wear masks, and, and going back and forth. Uh, the, the level of trust at all levels has just plummeted. And I, I don't know, I, I mean, it's not a political thing. Sure. I'm not a, an anti-vaxxer. I'm not a Trumper. I'm not anything like that, but I don't believe a word that Dr. Fauci says anymore. Me neither. I, what can you say? I'm glad you brought this up because I, as a historian, I don't know if you've done the history and tracked the vaccines and everything, but the anti-vax movement is really, a, um, it's a very, to me, it's a smaller circle than they're making it out to be in the sense of these people marching today are not about the vaccine. They're more about their rights being infringed upon. Would you agree that if we didn't have all those lockdowns last year, people would understand why they're pushing the vaccine on us. I mean, mandates are a little rough to me, but anyway, this is not, this is more about control in the vaccine, isn't it? For, on both sides of the aisle, I should say. I'm, I, people forget that during the political campaign last November, uh, yeah. a year ago, November, uh, Kamala Harris said she would not take a vaccine produced by the Trump administration. What can you, what can you say about that? What, well, how can you politicize a vaccine just because you don't like Donald Trump? It, it, it makes, and, and now you've got the other side, Trump people saying, I'm not taking the vaccine because Joe Biden and the Democrats are telling me to. And then you have a large, a sizable percentage of the, of the black population who has this residual memory of the Tuskegee experiment and thinks that the medical system can't be trusted at all when it comes to black, black Americans. And, I mean, the level of trust has just so broken and, on the one hand. And on the second, something that should be, you know, you get a vaccine. You, you want to protect yourself, get a vaccine. How does that become politicized and why? Well, one last question for you, because um, I'm doing a bit of a half hour show today with you, but Great. writing, 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 when you write about some things that you're very interested, like Sunnyside Gardens, when you write about the history of the city from the way you see it, is that your escape? I know that I asked about the books, is writing an actual escape also for you to get out of the mindset of like what the news is telling us? It is uh, how I got through the pandemic. I, I spent so much time at my office chair in my in my home study. I spent so much time that I wore the chair out. It, it completely was breaking. I mean, after only after 35 years, you'd think I would get some use out of that chair. Uh, but yes, to be able to have that constancy of having something to do, which is seriously think about something and just lose yourself in that topic. And, mm -hmm. and yes, writing is what I wish I could do more of, but now I'm an administrator. So <laughs> there go my hours. <laughs> well, and you know what? That promotion is a pretty damn good one. So congratulations on that, Professor Kressler. Thank you. So, I guess I call you the chief librarian now of the John Interim. Interim. <laughs> Interim. All right. Well, maybe you'll accept the tag on it. Who knows? But uh, Jeffrey Kressler, Professor Kressler, always a pleasure. And please do come back in this new role. Maybe you got some stories you want to share in this new role with us. I'd love to have you back.
Uh, there are stories, some of which I can even tell. No, you can tell. Very cool. Well, what? We'll <laughs> get further into the position. So, thanks again, Professor, and God bless. Thank you. I'm Alex Garrett, where we're always adapting and talking about things that should be trending but aren't here on Alex Garrett Podcasting. Have a great night.